Well, we had election day. How about a quick exit poll? How many of you went to vote? All right, good. Most of you. And how many of you are pleased with the outcome? Uh, half and half. <laughs> well, we've got a, uh, a new government. The Bible talks about election. Probably not the same kind of election, but I figured we could talk about election too. Um, we've got a new governor. We'll see how he turns out next year. And uh, I think it's interesting that the, the IRS doesn't want you talking about candidates. A lot of people in government don't want you talking about specific candidates. You know, they, they, they give churches this uh, exemption from federal taxes so that you can kind of rein you in. Like if you talk about specific candidates and say this is who, like if I stand up here and say this is who I think you should vote for as a spokesperson for the church, they might threaten to take away the IRS exemption. And that's a tool that they use to try to keep churches in line. But there's a, a number of pastors across the country who have decided they're going to not only preach their sermons about specific candidates, but they're going to mail them in and say, go ahead and, and try to revoke our tax status because we believe the Constitution says that we're allowed to speak our mind. When it comes to religion, we can talk about whoever we want to talk about and promote whoever we want to talk about in office. I'm not going to talk about specific candidates today. Um, we did get, it's interesting, we got a, a letter that was kind of a threat from an organization that said, don't you promote anybody or any stance, don't have any voter guides out there because that's just a, a loosely veiled promotion of candidates and issues, so don't you use that or else we'll, we'll have the IRS take away your taxes. So we got a letter threatening the church not to talk about the, the election. And then we got another letter that was, I guess you would call it an enticement from someone that said, if you use this specific voter guide, I'll give you money. And I wondered if they weren't tied together. Like, here's the threat, and here's the guy saying, go ahead and do it. And then they'll... So who knows? But we didn't pay attention to either of them because we want to pay more attention to what God says. And, uh, and the Constitution offers the, the First Amendment is the freedom of speech and religion, to practice your religion without being hindered by the government. Of course, it seems these days that the Constitution doesn't much matter anymore. And it's, uh, it's interesting how much attitudes have changed in the church over the years. I, I love some of the old American preachers. Some of the early, I've read some of those early, and even in Europe, there were some pretty fiery preachers, but I love reading their sermons. And I found this sermon that was written, that was preached in 1790. So not long after our revolution and the formation of our government, you know, it's a brand new country. And this preacher decided, he, he, he preached a sermon, it was in Massachusetts, and he preached it before all the government in Massachusetts. So John Hancock was the governor, you know, John Hancock, the signer of the declaration, and Samuel Adams, not the beer, the person, was there. He was the lieutenant governor in Massachusetts and the entire state council, the state house, the, the senate, their house of representatives. And they were all gathered. But, and this man, um, pre, his name was, uh, gosh, what was his name? I forget. But anyway, he, it was the day of the general election and he preached a sermon. And when I read through it, I, I guessed it must have been at least a three-hour sermon. 
that he preached on it. I mean, from the text that I read. And it was a, it was a great sermon. And so I've, I've kind of adapted it for today. And it's, it's kind of hard because back in those days, they used a lot of lofty language. I mean, they had long sentences and big words and colorful... I mean, it really was art. There was artwork in words that they had. And these days, people just don't quite have the grasp of the English language to, to understand it, at least not quickly. You have to stop and think about it some ways. And his, his text, his Scripture verse, was just Proverbs 8.16, which is part of our Scripture. It says, by, by me, princes rule, and nobles, and all who judge rightly. That was his text for his three-hour sermon. And I included... A little bit more, a little bit more of the chapter. So this is Proverbs eight, twelve. I'll start at verse twelve for our, our scripture today. It says, "I wisdom dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding and power is mine. By me kings reign." and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than the choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. So I picked that out because I've kind of written an adaption of his sermon for today. So get comfortable. We've got three hours worth of material. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm only giving you a snippet. But I wanted to read the first couple of paragraphs outright just to give you an idea of of what it sounds like from what this guy preached before the governor the lieutenant governor, the House of Representatives, the Senate, all the entire state government was there and this preacher preached. And this is what he said, just the first couple of paragraphs. In compliance with the laudable example of our pious ancestors on such joyful anniversary occasions as this day presents us with, we have assembled in the house of God to offer our devout praises to Him for what He has done for them and for us, their children, to seek His discretion and blessing upon our political fathers here present in the discharge of the important trust reposed in them and His smiles on this Confederate rising republic. That's just the first paragraph. Isn't that interesting? I mean, this, and he basically it's saying that they're celebrating Election Day, that that's the anniversary, and they're talking about their ancestors, the people who kind of got this government started and the revolution and all those people and of course the current government sitting before him who all came to his church and and that they're talking about how important it was that they are entrusting what they are entrusting these government leaders with and that's what he's preaching about and the next paragraph says and it has fallen to one of the least of the ambassadors of Christ to perform so essential a part of the exercise of the day It will not be expected that he turn statesman in this sacred place or wander into all the affairs of government, but in compliance with his character as a minister, make such observations from the sacred text as may be profitable for direction and encouragement that the men of God here present may be furnished to every good work. So basically the pastor is saying that he, just a, a lowly ambassador 
of Christ is not going to turn into a statesman or a government official, but he's going to try to encourage the people who are the statesmen, who are the, the governors, that they may be furnished to do good work as the, the government. And I'll just read just a couple more paragraphs. So that he, This book, he's talking about the text that he's reading from, and that's the, the book of Proverbs, says this book was penned by King Solomon, a man famed for wisdom and understanding throughout all the East. That being who has an easy access to the human mind appeared to him in Gibeon in a, in a vision of the night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And his request, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart, was so acceptable that God gave him wisdom above all that were before him in Jerusalem. For the people soon perceived that wisdom, that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. So that's just a simple, talking about the book of Proverbs, that when God said, Solomon, what do you want? You've been a good servant. I want to give you a gift. What do you want? And he could ask for riches. He could ask for power. And Solomon said, no, I want wisdom. I want just help me to understand. And God said, I'm going to give you so much wisdom that you'll be smarter than everybody else who's alive. And so Solomon became the wisest man in the planet. And so in, in Proverbs, it's a good book. If you've never read it before, you ought to. It's a book of, of wise sayings that Solomon wrote down. And he gives us a, a straightforward and easy to understand presentation of the duty that we owe God. He kind of writes it out in little snippets and, and in books. I mean, it all kind of flows. It, it looks like just separate stuff you just read through, but it all kind of makes sense if you read it. It's, it's a very comprehensive description of how we're to live in this world. If you just had the book of Proverbs and went by it, it's a lot of great, I think it's more than advice. It's direction for how we're called to live. And, and the direction that your life goes depends on the motivation that you choose to follow. You can either choose folly, meaning that you'll, be, you'll have vice and wickedness, or you can choose wisdom, like Solomon did, meaning that you'll follow Christ. You'll have grace. And the, the book of Proverbs kind of directs you into that. And the person who's speaking in the, in the text that we read in the Scripture, the person who we're talking about is obviously Jesus Christ. And it, it describes it as wisdom because Jesus hadn't been born yet. So Solomon is, is encapsulating the idea of God into the word wisdom. But Jesus, later on in Scripture, is called the wisdom of God and the power of God. So it's clearly talking about Jesus because Jesus says later on, by, in that Scripture, He says, by me... Princes rule, and nobles, and even all the judges of the earth. So you know it's talking about God, because God is the one who, who allows people to have power to run the world. So in other words, by, by my providence and by my appointment, because I decided to allow them, they are allowed to rule and govern. And their government can, can only be merciful and righteous and happy and prosperous by my counsel. If I am the one who they follow because I've ordained them, then only by me can their government work. God is the one who ordains leaders to be Christian leaders, to be godly leaders. God ordains good, godly Christian government. That's what He wants. He wants the entire world to run according to His precepts, according to His commands, according to His instructions. And God doesn't separate church and state. 
There's a lot of talk about that these days. God wants to bring truth and grace to the government and the whole world via the church. He wants the entire world to be in His grace. He wants everybody to turn to Him and obey Him and follow Him. His, his merciful desire is to produce the government, is, is to produce peace and happiness. He, I mean, he, that's ultimately, He wants us to have good lives. He wants us to have happy lives and peaceful lives and productive lives and fruitful lives. And, and to bring that about, He sent the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus, which is a government title, a prince, a, a ruler. Jesus is the ruler of peace. And and he sent the Prince of Peace into the world and he's given him a commission of ministry and of grace and of leadership and of government. We've got the first parts. We've got the grace and we've got the, the, the ministry of Jesus. But his ministry isn't done. And Jesus said he's coming back in power to rule with an iron rod. The, 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 intervention, the intervention of the new covenant when Jesus came and gave us that new that we just celebrated just a few minutes ago with the communion. The new covenant, the new promise, the new deal from God is, and the coming of Jesus as the mediator of that new covenant is it revealed God's order of, of heaven. I mean, we learn in the New Testament that there's a subordination of things in heaven and on earth. And, and that in heaven there are thrones and there are dominions and that there are principalities and powers and angels and archangels that, that, and there's this ruling hierarchy of things and on earth we have presidents and we have legislators and we have judges and, and there's some kings and governors and various other officials in government and Jesus Christ is the head over them all. In heaven and on earth, Jesus Christ is the head magistrate. And, and the Scripture explains that that people holding authority in civil government as ordained by God hold their commission and authority under Christ. That that's how God ordains leadership. They're to be under Christ. Their duty and their dignity comes when they operate as Christian ministers. That's what, they're called. That's what every leader is called to do. Whether you're a king or a prince or a president or a governor or a representative or a senator, Every one of them is commissioned and is called to be governors under Jesus Christ as Lord. And, and, and the duty and the privilege of the people who are governed also comes from the Lord. Our rights come from God, not from government. That's what the Declaration of Independence was about. Without God, there is no order. Without God, there is no real government. So God ordained civil government through Jesus as an, as an absolute necessity for peace and order because the existence of happiness and the existence of society depends on the divine originator of peace. Without Jesus, there's no peace. Without Jesus, there's no order. Without Jesus, there's no leadership. It's chaos. It's mass hysteria. I mean, ultimately, you remove Jesus out of the picture and the world goes dark and dismal, and there's death and decay and murder and chaos. I mean, that's what happens when you truly remove God out of the equation. And, and, beca and because without God, the affairs of mankind would, would fall into confusion and disorder, and we've seen that down through the ages, if you study history and you, you watch civilizations that rise and fall, you notice that uh, when God is not there, 
chaos ensues. You see that in our own history. We started out a much more godly nation than we are today. And you can see the change. If you follow history, you can see that as we've more recently removed God faster and faster, the moral decay of our own society. When God is removed from government and civil life, there's ignorance grows, selfishness grows, immorality, greed, perversion, and poverty. Those become the governors of our lives. And you can see that in our schools today. You can see, I mean, the quality of education a hundred years ago, even though people were trained in country schoolhouses, one-room schoolhouses, they had college educations by the eighth grade. I mean, what we teach in college today is grade school a hundred years ago. It's crazy to think about, but the decline of our education, we've got more technology today, we've got a lot of great tools, but when it comes to the average intelligence of, an, of a, you know, the, the population, it's very quickly going down. And you can see it in our courthouses. Our courthouses are rife with corruption and greed and scandal in our, our corporations. It's all about just doing whatever you can to make a buck. In our society at large, people are cheating one another and killing one another and lying to one another. And, and I mean, it's, it's terrible to think about what's going on as we pull God out of our government, out of our education, out of our society. You know, even if, it's, if sin had never entered the world, if Adam and Eve had never sinned and their children were, were obedient children, we would probably still have some, sort of, some form of government. Because it's in our nature as people, we're societal creatures. We come together and, and we, we commune and we, we make friends and we have family. So we'd, we'd surely come up with some sort of good rules for living in community. You know, so that we could have, you know, make business deals or and how, and rules for living in close proximity, whatever. We'd, it'd be simple, probably. It'd be easy because everyone would love one another and do the right thing by nature, but we'd still have some basic rules to live by. But since sin has debased the nobility of man and spread itself through the whole world, then government's become a necessity. It's, you know, both reason and history plead for godly government. We need good government. Because without it, we see what happens. And so good government is not just the smart thing to do. It's a moral obligation for the survival of society. Without good government, society falls apart. And you know, the, it's interesting, I, I, I lean libertarian sometimes, but the ultimate end of libertarian is there is no government. That every individual governs themselves. But when you live in a world like we do, where there is sin and selfishness and greed, you can't actually live like that. You've got to have some form of government. And, and since we're directed by the ruler of all kings and kingdoms to operate with wisdom and with righteousness, since God says that you are called to live good lives, then good government is a, is a vital tool for delivering society from evil. For having a society that can live in peace and can live in, in conjunction with, with, to live close to one another without killing each other. And government should direct us according to the good restraints of the gospel. That's what we were built on as a nation. They looked at the Bible and they said, we want to design a government based on what Scripture says. So they did their very best to design a government that ran according to the precepts of God. That if God says it, that's what we're going to do. So civil government... Is if, if it's done properly, it's a branch of the tree of life that, that, you know, that God has put that order into us and into the world 
It's founded and built upon God's covenant. God has made covenants with us, and He's, and he's the one who sealed it in heaven by His own oath and, and upon the earth by the blood of Christ. He wrote that covenant, and, and He wrote the old covenant. said, live by this law, and you'll be My people. And then He gave us the new covenant. You live by Me, and you'll have eternal life. And, and so Jesus, being commissioned by the Father, is the rightful manager of the affairs of the world. Jesus is the rightful manager of Europe, of China, of the U.S., of all the Middle East, and, and the entire world. Whether they like it or not, that is Jesus' proper role. Whether they actually obey it or not, that's Jesus' rightful role. Psalm 2, I'm going to read the whole psalm because it's a good one and we're going to run out of time. But, but Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rebel? Why are the countries devising plots that will fail? The kings of the earth form a united front. We see that today. The kings of the earth, the, the rulers all over the planet, are united against God. The rulers collaborate against the Lord and His anointed King. They say, let's tear off the shackles they've put on us. Let's free ourselves from their ropes. And you see that in our government today. Let's get God out of the government. It's happened in Europe. It's happening very quickly in our own country. Let's pull God out of everything we do. Let's pull Him out of our government out of our schools, out of our civil life. Let's not have monuments and crosses. Let's every vestige of Jesus Christ, we just get rid of it and not allow it. Make it illegal to have that stuff. And that's what government's doing. Verse 4 says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. And then He angrily speaks to them and terrifies them in His rage, saying, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king says, I will announce the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, and this very day I have become your father. Ask me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal property. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will smash them like a potter's jar. So now you kings, do what is wise. You rulers of the earth, submit to correction. Serve the Lord in fear. Repent in terror. Give sincere homage. Otherwise He will be angry and you will die because of your behavior when His anger quickly ignites. How blessed are all who take shelter in Him. So that's a different picture of Jesus Christ than we're used to, at least in society. You know, We, we have this picture of Jesus as the healer and the, and the graceful guy and the good preacher and the nice guy who who hung out with sinners and tax collectors, but here we get the picture of God handing Jesus the scepter to rule over the world. He says, you ask me, Jesus, you're my son, I'm your father. You ask me, the nations are yours, and you get to take charge. And it says Jesus will come and smash the nations and beat them into submission. I mean, that's a different picture of what we often think about Jesus. And so it says basically, nations repent. Repent in terror, because if you don't, trouble is coming. And then the last part, which I really like, says, how blessed are those who take shelter in Him. God doesn't want to smash people. God doesn't want to punish. God doesn't want to have to see us all destroyed. God wants repentance. God wants new life. God wants renewal. God wants to transform the world into good. But if people don't transform, there's going to come a day when God gets rid of all the evil and sets up good and righteous government under Him. Isaiah 9 is another good one I'll read before we finish up. Isaiah 9 at verse 6 
this one we hear at Christmas, and John mentioned it in his children's sermon. It says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So that's the ultimate end. After God has rid the world of evil, and there's going to come a day when he comes and forcefully rids the world of evil and sets things up the way they're supposed to be. And that's when... Jesus becomes the Prince of Peace. When the world is rid of evil, then forevermore He will be a ruler over a peaceful world and justice and righteousness will reign forever. And that's the picture of the ultimate King. Jesus is the ultimate King and ultimately, we're all His subjects. The Kingdom of Christ where He rules, it's a, it's, it's a spiritual kingdom. We know that. But of course, His commission extends around the world. That spiritual kingdom kingdom applies to our daily lives. I'm going to read one more scripture. This is Daniel. We went through Daniel and remember Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of the statue and there was the golden head and the silver body and the bronze thighs and then the, the legs ended up being iron and, and there was clay mixed with the feet. And then this big stone came and it smashed the statue into bits. And Daniel explained the dream to him and said that the the statue represented the different kingdoms down through the ages and that ultimately that stone, which they didn't know who Jesus was yet, but we know today, now that we have the New Testament, that Jesus was that stone, the, the rock that the builders rejected. And this is Daniel chapter 2, at verse 44, where um, Daniel is explaining Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him and what it means. And so we're at the part after the, the statue's been smashed and it says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will raise up an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed and a kingdom that will not be left to another people. It will break in pieces and bring about demise of all these kingdoms, but it will stand forever. You saw that a stone was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. And it smashed the iron and bronze and clay and silver and gold into pieces. The great God has made known to the king what will occur in the future. The dream is certain and the interpretation is reliable. So here in Daniel, one of the greatest books of prophecy in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar gets a picture of what's coming to the world kingdoms. That there are going to be world kingdoms and there's going to be people, be people who rise to power, but ultimately Jesus will come and reset the governments of the world. And He, His kingdoms will, will outlive all other kingdoms and swallow all the rest up and, and reign forever. I'm going to do one more. 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 20 says, <clears throat> But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then when Christ comes, those who belong to him. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has brought to an end all rule and all authority and power. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So we know that the mission of Jesus when he came, I talked about this last week, when Jesus' mission when he came to the earth 2,000 years ago was to save the world from death, was to offer people a way to escape the ultimate end of sin, to be able to repent and believe and find new life in Jesus. And he, and he didn't come to judge, he didn't come to condemn the world. That's you know, John 3.16 says, For I, the, the Father so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not be dead, shall not be killed, but will have everlasting life. And the next verse, which a lot of people don't know, says, For Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. So that first mission was a rescue mission to save us from our sins, to give us a way to escape death and be made whole and be made new and live with Jesus. But the ultimate, I mean, that's, that's first, the first part of his mission. The end of his mission is to make the world submit, to, to get rid of all the evil, to crush all the governments that refuse to submit themselves to God and to put himself as the ruler of the world. And when he's got everything in order, like God's given him the keys to the kingdom, when he's got the kingdom all in order, he hands it back to God and says, I've got it ready for you, Lord. Now it's, now it's ready for your worthiness. It's ready for your glory. And it says Jesus must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. That's his ultimate mission. He offers us rescue. He came and offered us new life so that we could be ready for that. So hopefully you're getting ready. Hopefully you've come to Jesus and found his forgiveness and found his grace and you've made a commitment that I want to live my life for the Lord and I'm calling on the Lord for help to obey him and to live the way he's called me to. And I only, you know, all I can do is fall on His mercy for forgiveness and entrust His power to help me live the life that I've been called to live. And so that's what I'm going to spend my days doing. And, and hopefully you accept that because if you don't, ultimately, after He's given as much chance as He can stand to give, He's going to come and say, alright, you've all had your chance. You've all made your decision. Today's the day when we, the reckoning comes. All those who follow Me, Stand on my right. All those who follow me, you're out of here. And he's going to put in an order and then the world is going to belong to God and the rest of eternity is going to be a church service. I mean, the rest of eternity is going to be us honoring the Lord with our lives, worshiping the Lord with everything we do. We're not just going to sit on pews, I'm sure. We're going to have jobs and be working and, and ruling and reigning. We're going to be directing angels in what they do. We're going to be building stuff. We're going to be building the kingdom. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we're going to be at work serving the Lord and ruling and reigning with Him. But it's going to be a 24-7 worship fest. It's going to be honoring God with everything we do. And there will be good. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more grief. There will be constant joy and a government of peace and a government of righteousness and all of us working together as the body of Christ doing what living the way we were designed to live. And so when we think of our government, I mean, there's lots more, and I'll, maybe I'll do some more, depending on if you guys are enjoying this. But if you take church out of government, if you take Jesus Christ out of the government, if you take God out of our civil life, out of our society, out of our, our, our nation, your town, you know, your household, your town, your, your county, your nation, if you take God out of that, the society is doomed to crumble and fail. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who want to get God out and just have this civil government 
without any sort of religious impact. And they talk about the separation of church and state, that they don't want the church to have anything to do with government, which is not at all what was talked about in the letters that were written that, that mentioned the, the separation of church and state because all the originators of government wanted God in there. They wanted Jesus Christ in there. Every state constitution mentions being us submitting ourselves to God. That that's why we have the constitution because we want to have a government that belongs to God. That we live according to every state that was part of those 13 colonies that become states. Every one of their constitutions, the constitution is based on the fact that we are God's subjects and so therefore we're designing a state government to live according to God. That's what the Declaration of Independence for our nation talked about. That because God has granted us certain rights, we want to form a government that protects the rights of the people and, and offers a way of life as a nation that is submitted to the nature of the, the, the law of nature and nature's God. That's our design and that's how we want to live. We don't want to have a king who's not God. We want to have our king be God. And so all of our representative leaders are going to submit themselves to God and therefore the whole nation will submit itself to God. That's the way our nation was designed. And so you take that out and, and society crumbles and fails. And it's happened time and again, down through the ages. So will that be the end of our nation? Will the, the, the nation's moral decay lead to our ultimate failure? Or will we come to repentance as a nation and find a new life? It depends a lot on what the church does. The church is supposed to be the leader of the world. Not the government. Not a, not a country. The church is supposed to... that we We're given a job. The church was formed so that we might impact the world for Jesus Christ. And that's entirely possible. I mean, it, it's absolutely possible. Not only are all things made possible through Jesus Christ who gives us strength, but if a handful of Christ's followers can turn their world upside down where the government hated them, the government wanted to kill them, and we're not at that point yet. We're getting there, but we're not at that point yet. But a handful of those people turn their world upside down is what Scripture tells us. If they can do it, why can't we? The church today is much bigger than 12 guys. There's a lot more of us in this room. And there's a lot more people across our nation who desire to live a righteous life for God and to have a nation that lives righteously for God. The latest election might be over. You can't go back and vote anymore for this election. And probably most of us who vote, all of us who voted, probably really don't have a good idea of the spiritual heart of our rulers that we've elected. We don't know the spiritual heart of our governor, of our senators, of our representatives, of the state, local, or federal. I mean, how much do you really know about the people you've elected? We need to change that. We need to pay attention to what the people that we hire to rule our country believe in what they stand for. Because really the, the, the political ideals really don't matter. Immigration doesn't matter. Foreign policy doesn't matter. Monetary policy doesn't matter. None of that matters without Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that they need to submit to. So we need to start hiring people who honor and serve and obey Jesus Christ. That's what will change this country for the better. That's what will save us. God has elected you to change this world, whether the time is favorable or not. You are supposed to be the change agents of the nation and of the world. So what are you going to do? 
I'll leave you with that thought. And, and if, it's, if it looked good, maybe I'll preach some more about this later on. But I pray that you'll take that to heart. I pray that you'll see yourself as an ambassador of Jesus Christ here to bring about the ideals of the kingdom of heaven to the kingdoms of earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much that You grant us the privilege of working for You. That You offer us a way out of the the sin and the death and the decay that we brought upon ourselves through our own evil choices. We thank You that You're not only willing to save us and clean us up and set us straight, but that You're willing to use us in Your government. That You want us to rule and reign. You want us to be Your ambassadors and Your administrators. You want us to change the world. You don't have to use us. You don't need us. You've got all the power that you want. You don't need us, but you've chosen us. And I pray that you'd help us to see that that's a high calling, that's an honor, that's a privilege. And I pray that you'd help us to make the most of that. That you would fill us with your Spirit, enable us to go out and change lives and hearts and minds because of your great love and your great grace. God, help us to live for you. Help us to change our world. Help us to save our nation through your power. Help us to bring about revival and repentance in our schools, in our churches, in our government, in our business places, in our homes. God, help us to turn this world around. Help us to turn this world upside down for you. You did it with a handful of men a couple thousand years ago. Please use us, your church, to do it again. And whatever happens, Lord, we're going to honor you. Our lives are going to be for you. We're going to submit to you and go where you want us to go and say what you want us to say and do what you want us to do. God, guide us and help us to be your good servants. Amen.